But let's just uh, bow our heads and let's ask God's blessing today. Oh, Father, the, the promise that we're going to be looking at today is so spectacular. Let us not see it with dull eyes. Let us not see it with a dull heart. Lord, let us be ravished by the promise that you have held out for us here in Romans eight seventeen, And may it move us, Lord, to a life of obedience and joy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start reading then in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now we are in the middle of a rich, rich passage. Romans chapter 8 is usually acknowledged to be one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest chapter in the Bible by people of all time and all different kinds of Christian backgrounds. So it really doesn't get any better than what we're studying right now. I want you to appreciate this. This is beautiful stuff. Now, last week we took a look at Romans 8 chapters or Romans chapter 8 verses 14, 15, and 16. And we saw that there were two words that kept coming up in the passage. One was the word son or children. And the other is the word spirit. So what we have going on in these verses is our sonship. And really what we have going on is the spirit of God working in the sons of God. Last week we looked and noticed three different things about how the spirit works in God's sons. The first one is that the spirit leads them to put sin to death. And that's what he means in verse 14. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. So do you know how one of the greatest ways a person can know whether he's a child of God or not? Ask himself whether he's waging war against sin in his life. That's a test right here in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God to put the deeds of the body to death, you have to connect verse 13 and 14 to see the context. But if you are being led by the Holy Spirit to put the deeds of the body to death, these and these only are sons of God. That's the point of verse 14. Secondly, how does the Spirit work in the sons of God? The Spirit causes them to cry out, Abba, Father. That's verse 15. The Holy Spirit comes into their heart and he changes their affections towards God and they instinctively know that he is the one that can answer their cry and when they're in need, they look to him just like a baby when a baby's born. Instinctively, he cries when he's wet or hungry or thirsty or whatever. So too, when we're spiritually born again, we begin to look to God and cry to God as our father. 
not as a master who's going to punish us if we don't absolutely keep his law. That's what he says in verse 15. We haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, he's my father, my papa, my daddy. And then a third way that the spirit works in the sons of God is in verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And here it's talking about assurance of your salvation. The Holy Spirit who lives within you communicates directly with your spirit and tells you you are God's child. And I think he does that through what we just read in verse 15, through these spiritual instincts that cry out to God as your papa, your daddy, your father. The spirit works those instincts within you. Now, last week, originally, I was going to include a fourth point, and this is what it was going to be. The Spirit assures the sons of God of their glorious inheritance. That's verse 17. I didn't get there because we had too much ground to cover, but I'm glad we didn't because now I get to devote the whole sermon to this one verse, and we can take our time with it. We can open up this idea of the Christian's inheritance. I don't know if you've thought much about your inheritance as a Christian, but we want to do that today. Verse 17 divides itself into three parts. In verse 17, you have the reason for your inheritance. You have the substance of your inheritance. And you have the condition of receiving your inheritance given you there. So let's look at those three parts. First of all, the reason for our inheritance. And this is really basic and it's very obvious, but we're going to state the obvious anyway. He says in verse 17, and if children heirs also. Do you see why some people are given an inheritance? Because they're children. They're children of God. And we know that uh, children, when their father passes away in this lifetime, usually they receive some kind of an inheritance from their father. Well, we're the children of God. God's never going to pass away. So we can't wait until he passes away to get our inheritance we, we don't wait till God passes away. We wait till we pass away. <laughs> when we die, we begin to enjoy more and more of the inheritance that God has for us. And on the resurrection day, we'll begin to enter even more fully into that inheritance that God has for us. He tells us that we're God's adopted sons in verse 15. We're his children. We're adopted into his family. And the adopted son has a legal right along with all the biological children, to receive an inheritance from his father. Now, do you see here that your inheritance has really nothing to do with what you do? And it has everything to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who you are related to. It's not a performance-based inheritance. In other words, you shouldn't have it in your mind, if I just work hard enough, someday I'll get that inheritance. No, this says if you're children, you have an heir. Then you are an heir. You have an inheritance coming to you. So the question you need to ask yourself is, am I a child? Am I one of God's children? It is not true that everybody in the world is a child of God. That is just not true. Paul says you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So true believers are children of God. Someone who doesn't have true saving faith in Jesus Christ is not his child. Okay, so 
Let's ask ourselves some, some questions. Are you a child of God? Has the Spirit testified with your spirit that you're His child? Has the Spirit produced new affections in your heart for God where you don't think of Him as a cruel slave master, but He as a loving Father? Has the Holy Spirit replaced the fear of a slave toward its master with a love of a son for its father? Has that change taken place within you? Do you instinctively cry out to God as daddy or papa or father when you have need? These are the kinds of things that should assure you, okay, if all those things are true, I'm the, I'm a child of God. I believe in Jesus Christ. He's wrought a new change within my heart. I have new affections for God. That means if I'm a child, I'm an heir. The reason for an inheritance is simply being a child. Okay. Now, secondly, let's look at the substance. And we're going to spend more time on this one. In other words, what does our inheritance consist of? What's coming to the children of God? Now, verse 17 gives us some hints about this. It says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God. That's the first thing we need to stop and think about. Heirs of God. What does that mean? We inherit God. You say, wait a minute, I thought we were going to inherit streets of gold, and I thought we were going to inherit um, all these great, wonderful things in heaven. Folks, there isn't anything greater than God. There is no greater treasure than he himself. He's offering himself to you. And he knows that that is going to create the highest everlasting joy in his people. He is our portion. He is our treasure forever. Just like the song says that we just sang. In the Old Testament, go back and think with me through the Old Testament. Do you remember when the children of Israel came into the promised land and they conquered their enemies And they dispossessed their enemies and took control of the land of Canaan. Do you remember that? And then God apportioned certain uh, allotments of land to the various tribes of Israel. So Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they all got their particular portion of land. But do you remember what it said about the priests, what their inheritance was going to be? They didn't get any land, but they got God. Let's just read that. It's You find it in Deuteronomy 18. Verses 1 and 2. It says, The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire in his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So the children, the uh, Levitical priests... They got God. They got something way better than some land and some hills and some valleys and some trees and crops. And they got God himself. They got the privilege of serving God in the tabernacle or the temple. They had the privilege of being separated from all secular concerns and worldly business to focus their entire life on God. He was the one that they served day and night, the one that they were considering, the one that they were worshiping. And here's the interesting thing. The Bible says that the New Testament Christian is a priest of God. In 1 Peter 2.5. So just like the Old Testament priests 
Their inheritance was God. So New Testament priests, our inheritance is also God. Let's take a look at that from 1 Peter 2. Verse 5. Peter says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. There it is. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the Christian is a spiritual priest. And he offers up spiritual sacrifices like praise and prayer and doing good and sharing with others. These are all spiritual sacrifices of a priest that we offer to the Lord. I think that's why Paul says in Romans 5 too, that we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So our hope, our future eternal hope, what is it? It's the hope of the glory of God, experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. That's what it is, Christian. That's why when Asaph writes Psalm 73, He says towards the end there in verse 25 and 26, Psalm 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Folks, the glory of heaven is not going to be that you're going to see grandma or grandpa there, or Aunt Maude, or Fluffy, or Midnight, or Spot. You know, that that's not the glory of heaven. Christ is the glory of heaven. He is the one that we are going to be enraptured and ravished with and enjoy supremely. He is our inheritance, God himself. And so what? what over in Revelation 21, verse 7, I want to read this to you as well. Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes is going to inherit these things. Well, part of that inheritance is the fact that God is going to be our God, and we are going to be his son. So what does it mean for God to be our God, for God to be our inheritance? I believe at least it includes this. We are going to inherit the attributes of God for our good. We're going to enjoy God's person, his character. What makes God God, we are going to enjoy that forever. So we are going to inherit his love and grace, his mercy and faithfulness, his truth, his righteousness, his wisdom, his goodness, his power. All the things that make God God are going to flow towards us in never-ending enjoyment. And we're going to have new hearts that will appreciate those things. You know, before we become Christians, we're dead in our souls and we don't even appreciate God. We don't love the attributes of God. But when you become a Christian, God makes you alive to enjoy him. So in eternity, we become heirs of God. Now, that's not all. Let's go back to Romans 8. He says in verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That takes us a step further. 
fellow heirs with Christ. Now that makes sense to me because we've been reading through Romans and it says that the Christian has been united to Christ, right? In chapter 7, it says we used to be married to the law, but we died to the law so that we could be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, so that we could bear fruit for God. So the truth is that if you're a Christian, you're married to Christ. You're joined to him. You're united to him. And when a woman marries a man, everything that that man owns, she becomes a co-owner of. Isn't that true? She has a legal right to everything that, that he used to own. Now it's hers. And I guess the same is true. Whatever she owned is now his. They own it together. So when Debbie married me, she got co-ownership and a motorcycle and a banjo. And that was about all, <laughs> that was about all I had back then. And some clothes, right? Yeah, and had a Bible. But, but she owned that motorcycle and she owned my banjo just as much as I did. Thankfully, she let me play it. <laughs> but, so that we are the bride of Christ and the bride of Christ gets to share in the riches that Christ has. Now, what did Christ inherit? Because if we can figure out what Christ inherited, then we know what we inherit. Because we're co-possessors of those things. Well, turn over to Hebrews 1. And I know we're going to go to a lot of scripture today. If you want to just jot down the references, you can and listen, or you can turn to them. But this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. All things. Through whom also he made the world. So Jesus is the heir of all things. Whatever you can even conceive of, (laughs) he has inherited that. I think that's why we're told in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to his disciples after he rose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Part of the all things is all authority. And how much authority? Well, it's all that's in heaven and it's all that's on the earth. I think that pretty much covers all authority everywhere, isn't it? Jesus has all authority in the universe. Or in John 17, verses 1 and 2, Jesus in that high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross Notice what he says there. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, part of the all things that Jesus inherited was all people, all flesh. And the reason God gave Jesus all authority over all flesh is because he wanted Jesus to give eternal life to those ones that the Father had given to him. You see that there in verse 2? All authority. All authority to give eternal life to this group of people. The group of people that the Father had given to the Son. The Son gives them eternal life. Or I think it's also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. This is great. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Now, if Jesus has all things and we're married to Christ, that means that we have all things too. That's exactly what Paul says. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
So these various church leaders, these apostles, or the world, or life or death, or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Why? Because you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. All things are yours, Christian. Now, he, he mentions things that we would consider good and things that we would consider bad. Life and death. And he says all those things, whether it's good or bad, all of them belong to you. Well, what does he mean that death belongs to you? I, I think what he's saying here is that everything will serve your everlasting joy if you're a Christian. Whether it's death or whether it's life. Whether it's Apollos or Cephas, those men of God are going to minister to you in different ways. All things, whether it's tribulations and trials or blessings and earthly pleasures and comforts, whatever God allows into your life, he's going to turn it for good. And it's going to be for your everlasting joy. So that's the second part of our inheritance. First, we get God. Then, since we're joined to Jesus, we get everything Jesus has got, which is all things. And the third thing here is the world. So, back in Romans chapter 8, we're going to, well, let's go to Romans 4, because there Paul makes this explicit. In Romans 4.13, he says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So there was a promise made to Abraham that Abraham would inherit the world. It's not just to Abraham, though. It's also to his descendants. Now, who are the descendants of Abraham, according to Romans 4? It's not just ethnic Israelites. It's those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us in verses 9, 10, and 11. Those who have faith are of of their father, Abraham. So if you're a Christian... This promise is yours. You are going to inherit the world. Didn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You're going to inherit the world. Romans 4.13. You're going to inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5. If we go back to Psalm 2, we have a promise from God the Father to God the Son, that God the Son would inherit the world. Let's show, let me show that to you. Psalm 2, verse 8. God says to Jesus, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So Jesus, Jesus, just ask me. Ask me, and I'm going to give you your inheritance. What is it? It's the nations. And it's the very ends of the earth. I'm going to give the earth to you. I'm going to give all the people in the world to you. And since we're joined to Christ, we also get the earth. We get the world, as we've already seen in other passages. I believe what he's talking about here by inheriting the world or inheriting the earth is the new earth. We're not going to inherit this old earth. This old earth is going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. And he's going to create a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, try to imagine a world, just for a moment. Try to do this with me. Try to imagine a world without any sin in it. There's no sin. And because there's no sin, there's no sickness. And there's no suffering. 
and there's no crying, and there's no pain, and there's no death. And there's no armies, and there's no wars, and there's no police departments, and there's no fire departments, and there's no IRS. <laughs> Try to imagine a world like that. I mean, it blows your mind. We, we can't even conceive. A, because the only world we've ever known is this one. But God's got a new one coming that far exceeds anything that we can ever ask or think and even imagine. So we're going to inherit the world. But if we go back to Romans 8, there's more. There's more than that. Okay, in Romans 8, 17, you need to look at the very last phrase of that verse. If children, heirs also, number one, heirs of God. Number two, fellow heirs with Christ. Number three, we inherit the world, 4.13. And then he goes on to say, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Here is another clue of what's included in your inheritance. You're going to be glorified with Christ. That's part of this inheritance for the children of God. But what does he mean, be glorified with Christ? Well, we need to look at the context to understand that. If we look at the six verses that come right after this one, we're going to understand more about what it means to be glorified with Christ. Let's just read those, verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice he he mentions the word glory in verse 18 and glorified in 17. He's connecting the two ideas. So as we continue on, we're going to see what it means to be glorified with him. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This may not make sense to you, but let me try to make it simple. We live in a sin-cursed world, in a fallen world, and when sin came in, everything changed in the creation. Not just human beings changed, like they would have lived forever without sin, but the creation, uh, the plants, animals, they get sick, they die. All of that was the result of sin. So that's why he says the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. They didn't subject themselves. It was because of Adam's fall that this whole world now is in um, a fallen condition. And then he goes on in 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, not only creation groans, But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, and here it comes, the redemption of our body. That's what he means by being glorified with Christ. It's the redemption of your body. That's what this this world is leading up to. That's where we're heading. That's the climax. When this present world is destroyed, a new one's created, God is going to redeem your body and you will have the redemp- the adoption of sons. Now, we've already received the adoption of sons in part. This is the fullness of the adoption of sons when our body is now glorified and resurrected and redeemed completely from all the effects of sin. 
and is now a holy body that does the Lord's holy will. Well, why would we need a glorified body, though? Why would God even do that? Why not just let us be spirits, perfected spirits forever? Why put those spirits back into a body that's been resurrected? I think it's because if we're going to enjoy the new earth and all the beautiful, wonderful things on that earth, and we don't commit idolatry by loving those things more than God himself, we're going to need a different kind of body to do it in. We're going to need the kind of body that is capable of deeper and higher joys than we now have. This body would lead us straight into idolatry because we have sinful tendencies within it. We need a holy, glorious body that this perfect spirit dwells within that can enjoy God forever to the max, to the fullness. Okay, so that gives us four parts now to our inheritance, right? God, everything that Christ has inherited, the world, and having this body raised up and glorified with him. But are there any other biblical hints throughout the scripture about what is included in our inheritance? And there are. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that one. That's the third part. You you're got ahead of me there. <laughs> but I'm going to kind of rapid fire read through some scripture. I'm probably going to go too fast for you. So if you want to, you can just write these down. First one is Ephesians 1.11. Paul says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now what I notice here is that this inheritance that God is giving to us, he gives it to us because we have been predestined according to the purpose of his will, the one who works all things after the counsel of that will. So the first thing to notice about our inheritance is that this inheritance comes to those to whom it has been predestined. It doesn't come to every child of Adam. It comes to the elect, the ones God has chosen to bestow his saving grace upon. Second passage, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. So again, this isn't some afterthought with God. From the foundation of the world, God predestined certain people to inheritance, and he predestined the inheritance that they would have. And what is that inheritance, according to Matthew 25, 34? Inherit the what? Kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. So the kingdom is the inheritance. The fact that we will be in God's kingdom, participating fully in that kingdom. And this is not the only time in your New Testament where we're told that we're going to inherit the kingdom. This is something, there's probably half a dozen references to this. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Just a little, little side note there. This inheritance is eternal. It will never end. Never comes to an end. It's everlasting. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4 
Peter says that we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Okay? Think about those things. Imperishable. It'll never go bad. Like produce you buy in the store and you leave it out in the hot sun and it stinks and it rots. Our inheritance will never go bad. Secondly, it's undefiled. I mean, there's nothing evil or corrupting. There's no corrupting influence in this inheritance. It's absolutely holy. Thirdly, it won't fade away. Never fade away like all the things we see in this lifetime. They, they wear out. They go bad. Won't fade, won't fade away. And then fourthly, it's reserved for you in heaven. It's reserved for you. Your name is on the table with, <laughs> your chair is there. Your nameplate is there. It's reserved. There's a reservation made in your name for that inheritance. God is holding it for you. Praise God. Okay, another passage is Titus 3, 7. He says, So that being justified by His grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here, being heirs is linked to and associated with eternal life. So, I mean, these are kind of synonyms. Our inheritance, eternal life, they go hand in hand. Or Hebrews 6.12 so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the promises are something that we're told is our inheritance. We inherit the promises. We inherit the the fulfillment of all the promises God has made to us. In 1 Peter 3.9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Inherit a blessing. So let's put all these together. Our inheritance. It was predestined for certain people. It consists of the kingdom of God. It's eternal. It's imperishable undefiled, won't fade away, and reserved in heaven for us. It consists of everlasting life. It consists of salvation. That's Hebrews 1.14. I didn't read that one, but it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So salvation is that inheritance. This inheritance consists of fulfilling the promises, and it consists of a blessing. So there's a mini-theology about the believer's inheritance. I hope that what's your appetite for what God has, has got for you in the future. It's a spectacular promise. This is food, Romans 8, 17 is food enough for you to meditate on for a long, long time. I think it would be good for every one of us to memorize this first, start our day with it, And put that on the forefront of our minds. This is my hope. This is my everlasting hope. Praise God for it. But there is one other part to Romans 8.17. The condition of receiving our inheritance. We haven't looked at that yet. Paul says, If children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
if, if there's a conditional clause here. This isn't an unconditional promise to anybody. This is a conditional promise made to those who suffer with him so that they might also be glorified with him. So not only is this a spectacular promise, it's a scary promise because it's only made to people who suffer. If there's no cross in our life, there's no crown. If there is no suffering, there's no inheritance, according to verse 17. So what is Paul referring to by the suffering? Sometimes we read these words, and because we live in America where we're not persecuted very much for our faith, we think, well, maybe I'm not going to get an inheritance because I'm really not being persecuted really horribly like in other parts of the world. Is Does this suffering only apply to persecution? My answer is no, it doesn't. If we look at the surrounding context, we'll see. Okay, in verse 17, he says, If indeed we suffer with him, and then in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that tells us that verses 18 and following are explaining now the suffering of verse 17. And what is the sufferings of verses 18 to 23 that explains verse 17? It's the groaning that the Christian goes through, he groans his way to glory. Verse 23, not only this, but we also, also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In verses 18 to 23, he says, Christian, you live in a fallen world. It's cursed with sin. There's evil around you everywhere. You see the tendencies towards sin in your flesh. You have to kill the deeds of the body. There's warfare going on. There's groaning. There's sometimes misery. There's grief as you see horrible crimes and sins being carried on around you. And you cry out to God, how long, O Lord? This is part of the suffering for the Christian. It's not only persecution, it includes all kinds of other types of sufferings as well. Any kind of suffering that you have to endure to get to glory is included in the suffering of verse 17. Now he says, if indeed we suffer with him. There's a couple of ways you can understand that, suffering with him. You can understand that to be talking about enduring our suffering Because we trust him, so then we're suffering with him. He's there with us in the suffering because we're trusting him through it, and he's giving us the strength to endure through those sufferings. Or suffering with him could be suffering the same sufferings that he has. You remember when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But they weren't really persecuting Jesus. They were persecuting, he was persecuting the church. But Jesus was so linked to the church that he says, when you persecute that church, you persecute me. So this can actually include the persecution that we face for Christ because we won't deny him and we stand for the truth. And so we receive the revilings of the world and sometimes great bodily punishments. Uh, You know, people have written books to tell us what it's like to actually be tortured for Christ. William Wernbrand, who spent 13 years in prison and was tortured. I just recently watched the YouTube video 
of that. It's amazing sufferings that he had to endure. But he was able to do it because Christ was with him. He did it with Christ. And this is not the only hint of what these sufferings include. If you go on further in the same chapter to verse 35, there's more. Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? These are examples, I believe, of the suffering of Romans 8.17. It's a sampling of the kinds of things that the devil would like to do to, to rip away the child of God from the love of God. And he's saying it can't happen. Who's going to be able to separate you from the love of God? None of these things can do it. But he, notice he includes in here things like tribulation. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. Tribulation works endurance. Tribulation means a pressure, being pressed in, being hemmed in. We all face pressures. Distresses. Have you ever been distressed? Of course you have. He talks about famine. Now here in America we don't experience that, but other Christians do. Nakedness. Peril. Sword. So these are... These, these are a sampling of the various kinds of sufferings that we may endure with Christ. And Paul says, the inheritance comes to those who suffer with Christ. When they face sufferings, they don't deny him. They don't walk away from him. Do you remember that Jesus gave that parable of the four soils? And he says, one springs up really quickly, but it withers away because it has no root in itself. And then he explains it. When trials or tribulations arise because of the word, he falls away. That's a false believer, a false convert. Someone who thought that he was saved, but in the hour of tribulation, he discovered he didn't have the root of true saving faith within himself. And he withers and he falls away, bearing no fruit. So brothers and sisters, do not content yourself on merely making a profession of faith. If you're new to the Christian faith, um, I'm glad about that. But you need to know it's not how fast you start from the blocks. It's whether you end up crossing the finish line that really counts. So cross the finish line. You're in this thing for the long haul. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And it's going to take everything you have and everything God has <laughs> to you, to support you and give you the strength to cross that finish line. But he has the power to do it. Look to him. So that's the condition. We've got to be willing to suffer with Christ. Let me draw this down to some conclusions. Why does God tell us about our inheritance and then tell us you have, we have to suffer with Christ in order to receive that inheritance. Why would God tell us that? I believe it's because God wants to wean us from the love of this present world. And if there, imagine a life where there is no sufferings. You would fall head over heels in love with the pleasures and comforts of this world, and you wouldn't set your gaze on eternity to come because you have, you have heaven right now. So God allows suffering into our life, I believe, at least in part, to wean us from loving this present world, from loving the pleasures of this present world, rather than loving our inheritance, which is God himself.
So this is actually a great mercy to allow suffering because it prepares us for the world to come. It sets our hearts on the things to come. If this was just a perfect world, we'd just want to stay here, wouldn't we? Why would we want to go anywhere else? We we have heaven now. <laughs> That's why I think Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Romans 8.17 is good news. It's spectacular news. God gave us Romans 8.17 to encourage us, to thrill us, to set our hearts on fire. And so I want to exhort you to look forward to your inheritance. First of all, you have to believe what the Bible says in order for this to have any powerful effect on your heart. So believe it. Believe the word of God this morning. And not only that, begin to look forward to this. Groan your way to your inheritance. That's the way we get there. Groaning over sin. And if we truly do believe the inheritance that God has for us, it'll give you the stamina to bear up under sufferings. And the greater the sufferings, the greater you need to set your heart and your mind and your faith on the inheritance. God himself, the greatness of that. See, we can, we can bear anything for a little while if we know that something far better is just around the corner. I'll give you a little example of that. In my business, if I didn't have hope that things are going to get better, I probably would have given up a long time ago because it's really hard sometimes. <laughs> it's really hard. But I have hope that things are getting better and that things are going to get better and better. And so I'm willing to endure now because I think something wonderful is around the corner. Eventually, I'm going to retire from that thing and I'm just going to oversee it and work an hour or two a week. And then I'll go on trips with Debbie and I'll minister and I'll disciple men and that's what I'm having my hope for. But I have to work hard now and endure now to get to that place. It's the same with heaven. We endure sufferings now because something far more glorious is around the corner. But set your mind and your heart on that and believe it by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the inheritance that you have called us to. We believe, Lord, what your word says, that God, you will be our inheritance. And Christ will be joined to you and all things that you've inherited will be ours and will inherit the new earth. We'll inherit a glorified body and eternal life and salvation forever and an eternal enjoyment of our God. Lord, there can't be any better blessings than these. So Lord, wean our hearts from this present world. Give us greater affections and greater love for you and for what you have promised us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.